And we're going to talk about kind of two areas of liberty in the Christian life. And the first being liberty that we have as a church. Uh, and primarily the fact that we are an autonomous church. You say, what does that mean? It means we're not a part of a denomination. We are an independent church. And, uh, and we are a self-governing church. And I want to kind of lay out what that means and, and kind of talk about that a little bit. And then from there we're going to go into us as individuals of the Bible position, I believe it's a biblical position, which we'll look at, of individual soul liberty. And uh, two very important uh, areas, and they're really causing us to be somewhat distinct and separate, stand out from uh, even other church groups out there. And so Colossians 1.18 says this, And he, that's talking about Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. So uh, here's some pages turning still. Colossians 1.18, and so he says, He, uh, Christ, is the head of the body, comma, the church. Uh, what, what, what's the body? The church. Okay, I want to make sure we're on the same page here. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Christ, might have the preeminence. Christ is to have first place in the church. Okay? He is the head of the church. He is the foundation of the church. You can say it this way. He's the first and the last. Okay, he's the founder. He's the one that purchased it with his own blood. It all comes back to Christ, and he gave us the blueprint. He gave us the Word of God, and so, um, uh, so we have uh, uh, some of these things. I just kind of want to look at tonight of the autonomy of the local church. That we are a self-governing church, and really, I want to start off with this question: What is a church? What was that you said? Okay. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think when we, we kind of start putting some things together, the word we get the, for church translated as church is the word ecclesia, which, uh, which in its very basic rudimentary definition there in the first century was uh, uh, a mob. Okay. It was a called out group for a purpose. All right. When you have a mob get together for something, what are they doing? They've, they've, they pulled themselves outside of the rest for their per intended purpose. However, there in the first century, it started in, in, the, in the Greek uh, culture, uh, language, it kind of became uh, exclusively used in the context of what we know of as church, okay? It was kind of getting away from just a congregating group to the Lord's congregation. And, uh, and so with that, we consider, we, what does the Bible talk about? It talks about those that, are, that have uh, joined together as a group of baptized, born-again believers um, that have been called out to carry out the Lord's purposes for their lives and for this world. So within there we have the Great Commission. Within there we have the ordinances. Within there we have discipleship and church growth. And, uh, and so we're called out unto God for His purposes as a church. And uh, it is important. You know, the word church itself uh, 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 really uh, only carries the idea, by definition, of a local assembly. Uh, the word, again, church is an assembly, all right? Uh, let's, let's use the illustration again of a mob. Could we say a mob is uh, universal, okay? Uh, the, the riots that are going on in different places, you know, in, in, in the lower 48 right now, could we say it's all one mob? I don't think we can. You know, there's a mob that's attacking this place. There's a mob attacking this place. And... Uh, and, uh, and so, similarly, uh, we are all, you know, there are individual churches. 
And, uh, and in fact, if you look at the, the doctrine of uh, the universal church, it really has one source, and that is the Catholic church. Uh, that's their doctrine. That, uh, in fact, the word Catholic means universal. And so, uh, so you have that concept. Now, unfortunately, I think what happened was you had Protestants that came out of the Catholic church. Uh, and what they did is they carried some of that baggage with them without really uh, addressing every single issue. So much so that many Protestant denominations still baptize babies. And they still do, you know, a lot of the things that the Catholic church did. They didn't really go through and address everything. They recognized some things were wrong. But they didn't go through and say how much lines up or doesn't line up with Scripture. Right? And as Bible believers, we want to make sure everything we're getting from the Bible and that it lines up with the Scriptures. Uh, remember we talked last week, sola scriptura, Scriptures alone. And, uh, and so we ought, to, we ought to get everything from the Bible. Are we okay with that? Okay, good. We've got some mm-hmm, some amens. All right. Make sure we're all on the same page here. And, uh, and so, so it's very important to understand the local church is an independent body accountable only to the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, all human authority for governing local church resides within the local church itself. No religious hierarchy outside the local church may dictate a church's beliefs or practice. Again, what I'm talking about is this. Uh, our church's position on, on the fact that we are an autonomous and always will be an autonomous church. Uh, uh, there's no outside, you know, uh, uh, Clay, we were talking the other day about a, about a church that... Uh, their college and school was kind of going under, and they couldn't keep up with the funds and everything, so they decided, you know what, let's join a denomination. And what happened? They started getting funds from that denomination, and unfortunately, it's now a church that we couldn't recommend. You know, they've, they've kind of uh, uh, wavered in, in, in pretty much every standard we might look at as, as a good church. And so, so many times that will lead to compromise. Why? Because there are outside factors all of a sudden. Did you know nobody knows our church more, better than our church? right? It's our church. We, we, we're a part of it with the problems and everything that comes with that, okay? This is our church. And, uh, and hey, if we can't pay the bills, we should look inward. We don't look to the government and say, hey, can you help us out here? Uh, we look inward and we say, what, what have we mismanaged? What have we done wrong? And, and of course, we look to the Lord and we look to the biblical principles of stewardship and things. And, and um, so that's, that's what we're, uh, we're kind of looking at. Um, <clears throat> Now, autonomy does not mean we necessarily exclude fellowship of other maybe like-minded believers. You know, we may have, you know, I don't know, down the road, we may host a, a youth conference or a men's retreat or things like that, a, a couple's thing maybe with other churches. And, uh, uh, but one thing we want to look for is, uh, is are we, are we aligned, aligned with basic doctrine and basic practices? You know, well, when we start going down that road, you want to be careful because we can run into this concept of, uh, of uh, what's, what's it called? Um, when, you, when we start talking about separation, I think we ought to separate from, from doctrinal error. I think we ought to separate from churches that don't believe the gospel, for example. We talked in, uh, in the new members class, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, fundamental, you know, fundamentals of the faith, you know, uh, I think some things are non-negotiable. The blood atonement is non-negotiable, you know, as far as who Christ is and what, why he came and uh, that salvation is only in him. Uh, there's certain things that are just non-negotiable. And, uh, you know, as far as just real Christian fellowship. Now, uh, I will say this, that say, suppose uh, uh, there's a cause. We talk about politics a little bit. So suppose there's a social cause. Hey, if you're pro-life, I'm pro-life, we can fight that battle together. Okay. 
because uh, really we're not talking about church. We're talking about human rights. Now, it is rooted in the Bible, but we're just talking about human rights, the right to life. Okay? And, uh, and so I'll stand with others on certain issues. I'll stand with all patriots who want to save this country. Okay? Uh, in fact, when I, was, uh, when I was in a foxhole in Iraq, I wasn't asking the guy next to me about his religion. Okay? <laughs> I wanted to make sure, do you have my back? <laughs> and I had his, you see, when bullets are flying. Um, now, I was in the sense of an of a ambassador. I wanted to make sure he knew he was saved. But as far as, uh, before he gets his foxhole with me, are you saved? You know, uh, uh, I only want someone who's saved to get my back. You know, uh, there is something that's relevant. But when we're talking about spiritual growth and those kinds of things, we want people that are uh, like-minded, you see. And, uh, but, but along those lines, there may be a church that's like-minded, who has somebody maybe come into their church to, to give a presentation or give a sermon or, or what have you, that we would disagree with. And, uh, and sometimes people get a little carried away. I will break fellowship with that person because they fellowship with that person. You know? Now, sometimes it might be legitimate. You, there is a measure of guilty by association. right? But, uh, but we want to be careful not to get too just overboard with this thing because at some point you're going to come across somebody you just quite frankly aren't going to agree with. And then what? It's just going to be us. Okay. Uh, and uh, we just want to be careful about getting hyper about that. But, um, but this concept of, um, of autonomy, uh, that we are a self-governing church, we're not a, connected to a hierarchy, we're not connected to a denomination. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and by the way, along with that, uh, God adds to churches. God is the one that adds to the body. And so, you know, if you feel led of the Holy Spirit of God to, uh, to join this church, you've spent some time and you've just, you know, believe that this is where God wants you to yoke up with, uh, I would say this, that, uh, that I think that ought to be the church that you're a part of. Um, you know, you, don't, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be, you know, well, I'm a member here on Sunday mornings, I'm a member here Sunday nights, or, or what have you. You ought to figure out where you want to be and where, you're, where God wants you to be. Uh, every church is going to have its own personality and every church is going to have its own um, even direction and, and those kinds of things. You've got to find out, God, where do you want me to be, to grow, to have my family grounded, and, uh, and so forth. And so, so I looked at those things. Uh, one preacher uh, uh, and historian, a Baptist historian from uh, the 1800s, he put it this way. The right of the church, uh, excuse me, the right of the churches in the apostolic age to manage uh, all of their internal affairs arose primarily from the fact that each congregation was, was perfect in itself for all purposes of its own church life. Now, it didn't mean that the people were perfect, like we use the term, but they, 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 they were complete as a church with the people in it to manage themselves. All right? Whatever, uh, uh, whatever fraternal sympathy or fellowship it might crave, it was in itself the visible church of Christ and complete for all, for all the ends of a visible church. Of, of course, this apostolic idea is at variance with all the popular notions of church life as it exists today, but it is no less apostolic on this account. Uh, and uh, well does Dr. Carson remark, he references another guy, as to a visible universal church, it is, exists nowhere, but in the ideas of, of, of po uh, polemical writers and the absurd distinctions of scholarship divin uh, scholastic divinity. An invisible church is purely indefinite and mythical idea. He goes on, the local church was the only uh, church known to the, to the apostles themselves. 
the one body, uh, excuse me, the only body which they ever addressed and which they knew collectively as the churches scattered abroad. They put it in a plural, plural form. The church at Rome was made up of those who lived there, who were beloved of God, called to be saints. That, uh, that at Corinth of them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The church at Ephesus of the faithful in Christ Jesus who lived there. So he's quoting all the introductions to each of these epistles, how they were identified in those epistles. Even those who attended worship with those churches but were not numbered with the believers had nothing to do with their government. Only those who were born of God and met in, uh, and met in any one place for all the purposes of a church under ordinance to Christ, or obedience to Christ excuse me, uh, were the Christian churches, uh, church in that place. There may have been more than one church in a given city, but there is nothing in the New Testament uh, to show that one central body in that city governed all its churches, if there, was more, if there was more than one. You see, the local church is autonomous. It's local. Uh, and, and, and really, even when you look at the scriptures, it's beyond dispute. Any, any aspect of there being a hierarchical uh, uh, approach to churches in the Bible is simply speculation. Uh, we definitely don't get it from there, okay? Um, and I want to give you a couple of examples of that. There may be one, one place I think someone may go to to try to defend that position. Now, no, there was a hierarchical issue. They went, to, uh, uh, they went to the church of Jerusalem when they were trying to decide if the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. And they may say that. In, in Acts chapter 15, a whole chapter is about that. In fact, you don't need to turn there, but I do want to read uh, just a couple of verses of it. Acts 15. Come on. And basically what was happening was all these Gentile believers were getting saved and others were saying, wait a minute, you've got to do, do this, this, and this. And so it says, And certain men came down from Judea, uh, taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. By the way, what a powerful verse. Go ahead and insert anything you want into that, uh, into that verse and you're going to have a legalistic uh, faith, okay? Uh, except ye be baptized, ye cannot be saved. Except ye be, you know, go down the list of things that people look to today. Except you, you take the Eucharist, you cannot be saved. Except you do this, do this, do this, uh, uh, you cannot be saved. No, no, no. Uh, Ephesians 2 makes it very clear. Titus makes it very clear. Um, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. There are no works required for salvation. For by grace you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are we okay tonight? All right. So they were saying, except you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. By the way, there's nothing new under the sun. We, we see uh, churches imposing these kinds of things, these kinds of topics on, on, on their people all the time. You know, uh, showing up at someone's door, you know. All right, your baby was born six weeks ago. How can you haven't seen us to get him baptized? Wait a minute. You see? And, um, and so they go through this discussion, and this uh, council at Jerusalem, it was a Jewish congregation that they went to, the, 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 uh, there at Jerusalem, and James, the, uh, the leader of that church, and the other apostles were there, and they discussed the matter. But keep in mind, whenever you approach the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a historical book. The book of Acts is a transitional book. 
uh, meaning we're going from New, Old Testament to New. And there are some things that are just transitional in nature. They're establishing the first foundation. The Bible tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So these apostles were laying out some kind of foundation and they made this decision. But they weren't decreeing it to all the churches per se. They were laying out and establishing doctrine. They were saying, we agree, we, we, we come to the conclusion that Gentiles are brought in the same way by grace through faith. They don't have to do anything, you see. A lot of these Jewish believers were Messianic Jews. They, they were doing the circumcision. They were doing uh, certain things as a part of their faith, but then they trusted Christ as their Savior. And so a lot of these guys were maybe had a background in, uh, in uh, Pharisees, uh, had different backgrounds. And so they, uh, let me just say, when you are brought up in a ritualistic system, it's hard to shake it. It's hard to shake some of those traditions, right? In fact, even if it's not really rituals in the sense that I'm... I'm um, uh, trusting in it for salvation, but sometimes they're just traditions. All right? A discussion came up in the new members class uh, 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 why we don't stand for all the songs or sit for the, you know, whatever it is. And, and uh, you know, it's not a doctrinal thing. It's, not, it's, it's really, quite frankly, up to the song leader. Okay? If we want to stand, if we want to sit down or, or what have you. But some people could be bothered by that. I'm just used to standing all the time. All right? I'm just kind of giving one example, but, but there could be a lot of things, you know, uh, you, maybe someone grew up in a church where, uh, where the offering, they had an offering box in the back and they never passed the plate. And they can go to a church where the p- plate is passed and be like, I just don't think this is right. This is just strange. You know, maybe be careful. These are just traditions. It's just how that place did it. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so anyways, let me give you one more example. Um, who was John, the Apostle John in the Bible? It's okay to speak up. Let's we'll talk a little. What'd you say? The disciple that Jesus loved. Okay, so he was very close to the Lord. Of course, one of the apostles. Did the apostles have authority? Yeah. Of course they did. That's where we got the New Testament from, right? Uh, of course, the Holy Spirit of God uh, gave the apostles, uh, uh, at least a select few of the apostles, uh, what's given us the New Testament. Could you imagine if one of the apostles wanted to come visit your church? First of all, my first guess would, my first thing that I'd say is, uh, uh, am I allowed to say no? One of the apostles, of course, you know, of all the apostles, he's one of the inner three. Of the inner three, he's the one that uh, identified as the one whom Jesus loved, had a very special place with the Lord. Uh, The one who was seen there laying, reclining on Jesus' bosom. Let me just say, he was very close and very comfortable with the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. All right? I want to show you something in, uh, in 3 John. Did I tell you to turn there? 3 John. Uh, I want you to see this, so you turn there. We don't really preach or reference 3 John much. It's uh, just one short little book. But there's an interesting verse here, and I find it kind of... Uh, kind of sheds light on this concept of an autonomous church. Verse number 9, he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephus, now get this phrase, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. The Apostle John writes to this church and says, there's a man in the church named Diotrephus. And here's Diotrephus. He loves to have the preeminence. Now, what verse did we open with tonight? Do you guys remember it? 
Colossians 1, what did it say about Jesus? That he must have the preeminence. The word preeminence shows up, I believe it's three times in the New Testament. Two is about Christ, and one is about Diotrephus. Can I say, two things cannot both be preeminent. And I'm afraid there are a lot of churches that an individual or personality has become preeminent. And by the way, we need to be careful that it doesn't become me. That the pastor does not become preeminent. Right? I'm an under-shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd, and he's the one that should have the preeminence. Uh, but with that issue aside, this is very interesting. He, wrote, he writes to the church, and he said, uh, uh, I wrote into the church. In other words, uh, uh, whether it be a letter or whatnot, he said, uh, you know, I'm going to be in the area. I would like to come and see the church. Diotrephus tells the apostle John, no. And you know what he does? Okay. Now, he has some words about him. Okay, which is another issue. But uh, he respected it. He didn't show up. Now, if there was a hierarchy, he would say, I'm sorry, buddy, you don't have a choice. In fact, the board has just decided you're out of here. Or the, uh, maybe board's not the right word, the, the hierarchical, hier- hi- the, the structure that we have, <laughs> the archbishop said, get out of here. You know? And so uh, what's kind of started to, started to happen is uh, in, in many churches, this concept, they've gotten away from local church, and we start to develop this idea of, of uh, things like, well, for example, uh, this hierarchy of, uh, of um, uh, the archdiocese, the bishopric, the convention, the association, what have you. And, uh, you know, and it gets to the point where there are denominations out there that every year they vote on what their doctrine is going to be that year. All right, guys, times are changing. Are we ready to start ordaining homosexuals? I mean, these are real discussions that are taking place at these conventions. All right, guys, times are changing. It's kind of chauvinistic and old-fashioned. I think it's time to start ordaining women. Okay? Uh, By the way, we don't go to society and look at the Bible. We go to the Bible. Okay? And, uh, And I know... Uh, some, some feminist head just exploded, okay? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we want the Bible to be our absolute authority. What does the Bible say? Okay? And so we go to the Bible. Um, and so, so, uh, so that's an important foundational thing that really causes us to be distinct amongst all these different kinds of churches. Now, um, does that mean all the, any church as part of denomination is in and of that issue wrong? I'm going to say no. Okay? But what I find in the Bible as a pattern that's laid out is each church stood by themselves. We each have a Bible as a church. We have believers that have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. And I believe that's enough. Okay? In fact, we addressed that issue earlier on this year that uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians Paul's kind of chastising the church, and he's saying, why, do you guys, why are you taking brothers to law? He says, the least esteem in the church. You know what that means? The newest Christian should be able to judge some of these matters. You know, maybe not the brand new Christian, but, you know, someone who's just kind of, you know, doesn't, don't even need to be a pastor. But some, some of the lower people in the church should be able to judge some of these issues. They have a Bible, they have the Holy Spirit of God. And so we, we kind of see this concept. We don't need to go up the chain of command, per se, uh, and say, you know, uh, the, call the main office there in Rome. <laughs> but, uh, but we can deal with these issues here in our church. Okay? 
And, uh, and maybe there is a doctrinal contention we might have. We ought to be able to open up the Bible and say, well, let's look at this thing. Let's examine the angles and let's examine the implications and the ramifications. Does that make sense? Are we all right with that? The people say, what kind of a church are you? I say, well, we are uh, independent. That means we're not attached to any kind of denomination. Okay. But, uh, but with that, I'm going to say that we are Baptistic in our doctrine. You say, well, what does that mean? Well... Quite frankly, being independent is a Baptist distinctive. That's one of the issues. Okay. And uh, well, the next thing I want to point out, which is also what led to even, uh, uh, even what we see as freedoms in America today, is this concept of individual soul liberty. Uh, Romans 14.5 says, One man, man esteemeth a day, one day above another, another... Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Here we have an issue. Uh, they're, they're talking about holy days. They're talking about meats. They're talking about all these different things. And here's what Paul was saying. You need to figure it out for you. Where are you going to stand on this issue? Okay? Did you know I personally and strongly oppose Christians celebrating Halloween? But you know what? If you're not at that place, you know, I would say this, don't make an ignorant decision. You ought to figure it out. In fact, the, the very last verse of that chapter, Romans 14, says this. Uh, but he that eateth is damned if he eateth not in faith. He was talking about meats to idols, and he was talking about uh, different, abstaining from certain meats and all that kind of stuff. And he's going on saying, we have liberty. But then he says this, but if you do it ignorantly and not of faith, to you, you're condemned. To you, it becomes a serious issue. Why? Because they're like, you know what? Instead of looking into the issue, I just decide I've got liberty in Christ and I'm going to go ahead and go with it. No, you need to be settled in your own heart and your own mind on these issues. All right? I'm not responsible for that. Hey, I care for your soul. I try to feed you. Uh, as a pastor, these are my positions, but at the end of the day, you got to, you know, in fact, the same chapter, uh, Romans 14, 12. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Every one of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, unfortunately, I can't be your advocate on that day. I'm not going to stand by you as your attorney. You see? Now, uh, I, I believe we're talking here of the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, if you're saved, all of your sins have been taken care of the uh, cross of Calvary. And we're not talking about that. Okay. But, um, but the reality is you need to figure these things out on yourself. And so individual soul liberty, you stand before, before God on your own. And uh, whether believer or unbeliever, every one of us got to get these things settled as, uh, as individuals. There was a... Uh, you know, because of this, we believe in liberty of the soul or of conscience, we might call it. There was a, uh, a pastor around the time of the Civil War, and he was very political, and he was very much involved, uh, named uh, Jeremiah Jeter, or Jeter. And it says, The liberty to worship God according to the dictates of conscience is the dearest of all human rights. That it should ever have been denied is one of the strongest proofs of human fallibility. But that was a good way of saying that. <laughs> I can't force you to believe anything. I can't force religion on you, right? And, uh, and quite frankly, Baptists throughout the ages have always opposed religious persecution. Always. 
You see, uh, people will say things like this. Well, you know, every religious group has its dark times in history. There's something that's been very consistent about Baptists through the ages, and that is they were, off, they were, they were the ones that were persecuted. You're not going to find in history Baptists that, for example, used a military to further the cause. You'll find that under John Calvin. You'll find it under Martin Luther even. And then, of course, you all know the, the harlot of Revelation, the Roman church. I'm sorry, was that bold? That was too, that was mean. This preacher goes, continues, he says, According to Baptist view, no man can become a church member who does not voluntarily accept Christ as his master, who does not willingly receive baptism um, in, as a picture of his submission. Moreover, having freely become a member, he cannot retain his place in the church unless his life is in harmony with his profession. In short, faith and baptism are essential prerequisites to church membership, and a godly life is necessary uh, to the continuance of the connection. If these principles are maintained, neither birth, nor baptism, nor education, nor wealth, nor office, nor profession can secure a place in a Baptist church, nor can one retain his place in it without uh, imbibing the, the Spirit and, uh, and I I imitating the example of the Redeemer. It is uh, obvious that a church organized on these principles cannot be a persecuting body. You get that? You can only join if you've got a testimony of salvation. You can only join if you've followed the Lord in baptism. You can only join if you've, you are continuing in that testimony. You can only join if you want to. Um, in, talking about or in talking about church membership, people have suggested to me... Uh, uh, I don't think you should make somebody be baptized to join the church. Well, first of all, I'm not making you do anything. And I'm not making you join either. Um, individual soul liberty. So he says, for what purpose could it persecute? Not for forced members to join. For none can be admitted to its membership without qualifications which no persecution can, can secure. In other words, you can't persecute somebody into a godly lifestyle. <laughs> kind of an interesting concept, right? Uh, not to keep members, uh, uh, excuse me, not to keep members within it, for it can retain only such as love its members. Doctrine, ordinances, and discipline, and discipline, and force can produce, uh, cannot produce these fruits. So, in other words, you know, to st to stay in our church as a member, you got to kind of like each other. That's kind of what he was saying. You've got to kind of enjoy what the church does and its functions. You've got to kind of be a part of it. So the, concept, or to, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the conquest of such a church must be made not by the sword of ex the executioner, but by the sword of the Spirit. Other churches may employ carnal weapons and inflict pains and penalties to promote their prosperity, but Baptist churches, if they flourish, must succeed by moral... Uh, 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 and uh, uh, I don't know what that word is, <laughs> and the grace of God. In the 1800s, they used words I don't use today, so forgive me on that rather than stumble over it. You see, soul liberty is uh, uh, very similar to the priesthood of the believer, which we'll talk on another time, but, uh, but we see from Scripture, every man is a free moral agent before God and is accountable to him. 
We must all stand before God individually. No, one, no one's going to do this for us. Your parents aren't going to stand for you. Your pastor's not going to stand for you. No priest is going to stand for you. You know, individual soul liberty. And what am I talking about? Why am I bringing up these particular issues? Because these are things, even doctrinally, that set us apart from a lot of churches out there. Some believe that you need a mediator besides Jesus Christ. Whether it be Mary, whether it be your priest, you see? No, because of my high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, I can enter boldly. I have access. In fact, we sang tonight Romans 5. Uh, uh, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and not only so, but we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And, and, uh, and not only have I right with God because of Christ, but I have access to God because of Christ. What wonderful truths. So the doctrine of soul liberty has been attacked on two fronts. First and foremost, the church-state marriage. And we'll talk about that uh, at another time, separation church and state, which is a Baptist distinctive, by the way. Um, and uh, and uh, that is the state needs to stay out of our business. Okay. And, uh, um, but uh, uh, but the, the other issue, which I'm going to kind of uh, zero in on, is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You say, what is that? It, Jesus addressed this, uh, the church at Ephesus, I'm sorry, the church at uh, Pergamos. Uh, um, or, uh, let's see. Yeah, in, in Revelation, um, uh, what is this, um, chapter 2, verse number 15, uh, it says, But this uh, thou hast, talking about the church at Pergamos, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I'm, I'm sorry, he was talking to the church Ephesus about the, the Nicolaitans. He says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So hast thou also them, which hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. And so he, was, he had, he had um, told the church Ephesus, good job on hating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I hate it too. The church had pig, uh, uh, um I'm sorry, how do you pronounce them? <laughs> the, yeah, Pergamus. Uh, he said to them, you guys have suffered. You guys have allowed the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So you say, what is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, um, Nicolaitan is a transliterated word, meaning they just simply took the word in Greek, brought it over to English. So it's a compound word, and it's going to give us insight who these guys are. The word uh, nikeo means to conquer. Laos means common people. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was to conquer the common people. It was a hierarchy. It was an oppressive type of religion saying, my way or the highway. Okay? And we saw that throughout history. In fact, some people have taken the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation and, and broken them out into church ages. I believe there were literal churches, but I believe there was an element of prophecy in that they were church ages. Well, this one uh, really lines up with the in church history of about 200 A.D. to 500 A.D., where we see the birth of the Catholic Church. What were they doing? They were Nicolaying the people. They were conquering over the laity. And in that time period, what they started to do is they started to forbid reading of the Bible. They confiscated Bibles. And they basically said only those who are approved by the church can read the Bible. And that entered into what we call the Dark Ages. Why was it called the Dark Ages? Because the light... Was, was, was attempted to be stomped out, the light of the Word of God. There were no Bible. And, uh, and uh, those that had the Bible, you know, uh, were perverted in their doctrine to begin with. 
So they're teaching these people who did not have a Bible. It's illegal to have a Bible. And, uh, and then, of course, from there you even have ignorance and those kinds of things where they're not allowed to learn to read. And so it's simply the church's job to tell you what God said. They were the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, verse 130, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. See, when the Nicolaitans robbed the people of their Bibles, every man began to do that which is right in their own eyes, leading to the death of more than half the population of Europe. I wish I could say that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was dead and gone, but it's still alive today. And this doctrine presents itself in some, uh, uh, some, some, this concept of lording over. Even, in fact, in the, New, in the Bible, the pastors are warned not to lord over God's heritage. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But the first Nicolaitan attack on soul liberty is, is uh, the necessity of creeds or councils which goes into what we're talking about, the, the, the autonomous church as well. Francis Wayland, he was a Baptist educator and economist in the 1800s. He said this, he said, The question is frequently asked, what is the creed and what are the, the acknowledged standards of the Baptist church in this country? To this general answer has even been, our rule of faith and practice is the New Testament. We have no other authority to which we will profess submission. To this, I will reply, by Christians of other denominations, we all make the same profession, but we have, we, we have also our uh, uh, excuse me, authorized confessions, creeds, and, uh, and, and formularies, to which everyone who enters our churches must subscribe. They are framed by our highest ecclesiastical tribunals, and they, to, our, to a greater or less extent, govern the profession of all our members, it is in this manner alone that our unity is preserved and our members protected from success, uh, uh, seductions of error. To this we answer, whether an established confession of faith is desirable or not, with us it is impossible. We believe in the fullest sense of the independence of every individual church of Christ. We hold that each several uh, uh, church is a Christian society on which is conferred by Christ the entire power of self-governance. No church has any power over another church. No minister has the authority in any church except that which he has called, has called him to be its pastor. Every church, therefore, when it exposes its own belief, expresses the belief of no other than its own members. If several churches understand the scriptures on this, in the same way and all unite in the same confession, then this expresses the opinions and beliefs of those who profess it. It, however, expresses their behalf because all of them, from the study of the scriptures, understand them to be the same manner, and not because the, any tribunal has imposed such uh, inter interpretations upon them. We cannot acknowledge the authority of any such tribunal. We have no right to delegate such an authority to any man or to any body of men. It is our essential belief that the scriptures are a revelation from God given not to a pope or a congregation of cardinals or an archbishop or a bench of bishops or a general assembly or a, a, a synod, uh, but to every individual man. They were given to every individual that he might understand them for himself, and the word that is given him will judge him on that great day. It is hence evident that we can 
have no standard which claim to be of any authority over us. I don't know if you caught all that, but uh, here's what he was saying. When we lay out this creed, when we lay out this set of standards of beliefs, uh, we get ourselves in trouble. We really limit ourselves. But if we all look to the Bible, it is amazing how we will have a commonality of our understanding of Scripture. And I, I, this became so evident to me when I, uh, when I visited autonomous churches uh, down in Mexico. These churches were not connected to a missionary. They were uh, indigenous, and, uh, and they had a Bible, and I had a Bible. And we'd sit down, and we'd discuss things of doctrine, and you know what we found out? We agreed. It was amazing. We had the same Bible. Of course, theirs was in a different tongue. <laughs> yes, I believe in tongues. That way. But we had the same Bible. And, uh, and, uh, and so subsequently, we came to the same conclusions on things. But you know what's dangerous is when all we do is have, for example, uh, uh, you have a, uh, uh, what's it called when you get to a certain age? Some of these denominations have, um, uh, you go through this class and you have to pass a test on confirmation. Thank you. Confirmation. When you have things like that, you know what you're doing? You're putting together a list of prepositions. Right? Or you say, we, about the Trinity, we believe this. About the church, we believe this. About whatever, we believe this. And it's a bunch of statements. But you know what it doesn't tell you? It doesn't tell you the whole story. How did we get to that place? And you know what you're going to find? People that, that hold to those kinds of things, they tend to drift. But people that do not necessarily, you know, for example, I don't get up every Sunday and say, all right, guys, here's our statement of faith. I'm going to preach from it today. But you know what? If I'm preaching the Bible, we're going to have some very similar doctrine to one another. It's individual soul liberty. And so, you know, uh, we're going to be going through some of those things, even in our church constitution. But, in fact, it's actually been just recently I came across some, some people talking about even the danger of having things like a statement of faith. And at first you're like, what? That's silly. But uh, one guy pointed it out that those that hold strongly to statements of faith tend to drift which is contrary to the purpose of having it. You think, oh, this is going to solidify. This is going to keep us solid right here. But what ends up happening is when you just have it in writing, you don't teach on it. Well, here's our church's official position. Okay, but do they know why? Do they know how? Where it came from? You see? I'd rather just teach the Bible rather than instead of having you memorize a series of propositions. You see? But, uh, you know, um, the second issue, uh, uh, and it's quite successful in Nicolaitan attack on soul liberty in our time, is, uh, is uh, the shattering of the average believer's confidence in his ability to study the Bible. Uh, there was a young man I went to high school with, and neither of us were really, you know, I, he wasn't really active in church. And I wasn't. Later on, I found out he became a pastor, and I became a pastor, and, and we kind of connected for a while on, on Facebook. He, uh, I can't even remember what... Uh, uh, I want to say he was a, a Presbyterian or something. And we got into the discussion about the Bible. And, and uh, basically, he came to the conclusion, it took a while to get there, but basically, you really can't know what the Bible has to say unless you become a Greek and Hebrew scholar. Sorry, layman. See, all we're, what we're doing, we're repeating history. Sure, read your Bibles for, like, devotions and that kind of stuff, great. But if you really want to understand what it has to say, you've got to get an education. You've got to get a higher degree. You see? And, and, and we, we start to buy into these things. Uh, 
But it's amazing how people look at this and, and, you know, this, you know, to understand the deep things of God, you need Dr. So-and-so. And he'll help you. He'll tell you what it, what it has to say. A crystal clear example of this type of uh, Nicolaitan assault, and, and uh, forgive me if you are a big fan of this guy, but um, a book, Rediscovering Expository Preaching, Dr. John MacArthur. I want you to hear this caption that he had to say. Um, by the way, this book is used in many Bible colleges and seminaries today on how to handle the Word of God in the pulpit. He said this, The proper choice of an English translation on which to base a sermon is the subject of, the, of chapter 17 in this book. But whatever version is chosen, the preacher will have to correct or clarify the translation during the message. During a message, he must be careful to limit those corrections, perhaps to only two or three, for fear of shaking the confidence of his listener in the Bible they hold in their hands. Are you guys hearing this? After all, part of his goal is to cultivate a hunger among his people to study the Bible privately. Too many criticisms of the Bible will undermine their dependence on a given translation and fuel a what's-the-use attitude on their side. Can I tell you one correction will do that for me? Why do we have a Bible if you're going to keep changing it and correcting it? By the way, what arrogance. And, and, and not that I'm, I'm huge necessarily on scholarship, but do you understand the scholarship of the, of what was it, I think 57 translators of our King James Bible? Aside from the fact that I believe God's hand was in that thing. Do you understand the scholarship of these guys? For me to think, by the way, I could go to school the rest of my life and I don't think I'd meet the level of some of these guys. I mean, the incredible, incredible linguists and their understanding of the language and the cultures and customs. This is in his book on how preachers ought to handle the Word of God from the pulpit. Now, we don't want to cause them to doubt too much. You see, this is why I made this statement in, um, in the new members class. I don't recommend any, there, there's not a single seminary that I could recommend. Because they're full of professors that say stuff like this. That cause you to doubt the Bible. To doubt that it is infallible. Oh yeah, it was given of God, sure. But it's not infallible. I'm sorry, God gave us a book. And we can count, we can depend on it. Um. <laughs> but let me just say, the way to understand Scripture is not to think you're so smart because you've got a strong concordance. The way to understand Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture, spiritual with spiritual. You've got to get in there. Yeah, you've got to do some work. You've got to study. And I thank God that a brand new Christian gets milk from the Word. And I thank the Lord that a mature Christian gets meat from the Word. And it's the same source for their food no matter what stage you're at. Hey, if it's too much and you're starting to choke a little bit, just put the, take the, to do it like you're eating fish. Take the bones out, put them on the side of the plate for someone else to choke on, and you keep eating some good meat. But boy, what kind of garbage. <clears throat> I'm going to decide if I want to. Oh, yes. Um, 1 Corinthians 2 says this, And I, brethren, when I came into you, came not with excellency of speech of wisdom. By the way, if anyone could come with excellency of speech of wisdom, it was the Apostle Paul. 
In fact, before he went to, the, to Corinth and started that church, he spoke with excellency of wisdom. He was at Mars Hill. And he stood and said, here's the tomb of the unknown God. Let me tell you about this God. And what's interesting is he talked about the creator and he talked about all these things, but he never mentions Christ in that little, as far as him crucified. And subsequently, not a lot of people were saved there at Mars Hill. A couple listened. A couple said, we'll hear you again on this matter. But many did not believe. So his next stop, he tells about his story when he was there. He says, when I came to you, it was an excellency of speech, wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't approach this area as a great apologist. He said, I came in complete ignorance. I didn't claim to know anything except there's one thing I know, guys, and that's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus Christ, him crucified. That's what he preached. You see, you don't have to have all these degrees. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. You just preach Christ and him crucified, okay? Um, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we spake wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world uh, that come to naught. But we speak with the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And uh, it goes on. I'd encourage you to read even beyond there, but for sake of time, I'll move on. The third thing I want to mention about the Nicolaitan attack on soul liberty is a hyper-controlling pastor. Remember, we're talking about uh, the Nicolaitans, the conquering over the, the, the average person, the people, okay? Uh, a hierarchical type of a thing. The pastor that has little confidence in the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in a believer's heart. One of the things that just challenged me, hit me so hard, I was, uh, I was at a uh, preacher's meeting and a pastor there who's had a big influence in my life, uh, Doug Fisher from San Diego. He said this, I'm not the Holy Spirit. You think, well, duh. And the context was what we're talking about right now. He says he never told any of his young people where to go to college. He never told any of his people, you know. He says, I'm not the Holy Spirit. He says, if you make a wrong decision, you can come back and blame me. <laughs> if you're saved, folks, you've got the Holy Spirit of God, and you've got a Bible, and, and I'm here to give counsel, and I'm here to show the principles, but I can't tell you everything of God's will for your life. I'm not the Holy Spirit. This kind of pastor believes that if, he, if he's honest with himself, that his members are incapable of holy living without his direction in practically every area of life. The Nicolaitan error crushes the believer's ability to discern the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the pastor as overseer and shepherd of his flock has a responsibility to warn and instruct, preach and teach in all areas the Word of God speaks. A godly pastor will strive to to teach his beloved flock to see uh, his wicked world through a biblical glass. He'll teach them to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. A godly pastor teaches his people to pray, to discern, to judge. He will explain the biblical requirements for leadership in the church that he has been called to pastor. He will, with counsel of godly men of his church, uh, exercise church discipline. The hyper-controlling pastor steps over the line of his responsibility when he assumes the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. Plainly stated, it's the pastor's job to preach, teach, administrate. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict and to sanctify. 
The Holy Spirit of God is working in every individual soul's life. We talk about individual soul liberty. I'm going to share with you one verse and we're done. Second uh, Corinthians. This leaped out at me one day. Second Corinthians. Similarly, as I talked about the Apostle John, here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church of Corinth the second time, and uh, he's with Timothy this time. And uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, in verse number 24, the last verse, here's, here's the apostle who, he spent a whole book to this church basically correcting all of their problems. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 is all about. You, church, are messed up. Here are the issues. And the rest will I set in order when I come. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So here's the second one. And he said, I don't want to come to you with heaviness this time. But here's what he says, verse 24. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. What an incredible verse for a church leader over a church. Folks, I don't have dominion over your faith. My job is to be a helper of your joy in Christ so that your faith can be free to flourish because by faith you stand. I don't have dominion over your faith. You know what we believe here? We believe in individual soul liberty. As much as I want to go to house to house and go through all your houses and say, uh, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, throw this out, get rid of this. Folks, you've got to make some decisions for yourself. You've got to, so to speak, put your big boy pants on and grow up in the Lord and walk with God. I'm to be a helper of that. I'm to encourage you in that direction. I'm to feed the flock of God, and I'm to help you in these things. And boy, I especially, I'm to help you in your joy. You know you can't grow when you're not experiencing joy. You're going to be down. You're not going to, you're stuck. I mean, all the, all the terms to describe someone who's lacking joy is all downward in a pit, right? And, uh, and uh, what, there's no upward motion. There's no movement. You're not growing. And so as a, as a pastor, I don't want to be a Nicolaitan. Pastor, you're just not doing enough. Hey, <laughs> you guys need to make some decisions on your own. You guys need to be Christians. If you're saved here, and I hope every one of you are, you've got the Holy Spirit of God living in you. And you've got the only book God ever gave man. And Peter tells us this. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Folks, we lack nothing. We've got it all. Now we need to start living in what we believe. Allowing God to grow us. Submission to, to, to the Holy Spirit of God and so forth. And so there are two areas of liberty. We are an autonomous church. Hey, let's let everyone just stay outside, okay? They can't come in and tell us how to do things. And by the way, I really don't care of other churches' opinions of us either. Well, I don't think you're really a church. Okay, fine. Because God's doing something here. Secondly, individual soul liberty. Hey, by the way, if you ever leave this place, don't let anybody rule over your faith. You are going to stand before God on your own. It's interesting, you know what the Bible says? Study to show thyself approved under the church. Study to show thyself approved under God. A workman eateth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. Word of truth. Hey, I'm thankful for those who want to volunteer and want to help and those kinds of things. 
But the reality is this. We serve the Lord Christ. And it doesn't matter what I think about you. It doesn't matter what the other person thinks about you. You ought to serve the Lord with joy and gladness and grow in the Lord in that way. Okay? Went a little long.